for the, the sermon this morning. First Kings chapter 19. Uh, and I, I feel like this kind of needs a, a little bit of a a little bit of an introduction, because uh, it, it can seem like sort of a random text uh, to go to. Um, this is the, the call and the commissioning of Elisha, the prophet. Uh, now, Elisha has been one of my, my favorite Old Testament prophets uh, for, for a few years now, in part uh, because I think he really sort of flies under the radar as uh, one of the lesser-known prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, mostly, though, because his ministry is uh, is really designed to foreshadow for us Jesus Christ and what he comes to do. Uh, you're probably more familiar with Elisha's predecessor, Elijah. Uh, he is the prophet who does battle with the, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and rains fire down from heaven. He squares off with, with king, wicked king Ahab. Uh, Elijah is the one who appears on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in the New Testament. But Elijah and Elisha together uh, make this sort of pair that fits this pattern we see a couple of times in Scripture of of just these these back-to-back prophets who come and do ministry. Uh, So, for instance, Moses... Moses and Joshua together are a pair. Moses comes uh, and he confronts the Pharaoh in Egypt. He does battle, so to speak, with the the gods of Egypt, uh, the ten plagues, all that good stuff. When his ministry is over, Joshua takes over. And and Joshua is actually the one that brings them into the promised land. Joshua is the one that gives the people rest. Uh, Another one of these pairings is actually John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist, his ministry was filled with with confronting the Pharisees, preaching repentance, calling people back to God. And of course, Jesus is the, the, in the fullest, most ultimate sense, brings about salvation and rest for his people. And Elijah and Elisha fit that pairing as well. Elijah comes and and confronts and does war and calls to repentance. Elisha comes with a ministry of of restoration and salvation. We see that that Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist, they're a little more messy, again, a little more confrontational. Uh, They fight. They also prepare. And Joshua, Elisha, and Jesus come along and in essence, save. They give rest. They give restoration. Uh, now, even if you don't follow all of that uh, tracking throughout Scripture, that's okay. Uh, Elisha, as God's prophet, is a, is a beacon of light and hope in a world that is very, very dark. Uh, so, First Kings is a world that is, is filled with rampant sin uh, institutionalized sin. Uh, God's people and God's prophets are threatened and persecuted uh, to the point where they're hiding in caves during the time of Elijah and Elisha. There is a lot of frustration and discouragement as this great kingdom that, that should have been God's kingdom doesn't seem to be working like we would expect. 
And so it's, it's, it's a dark and discouraging time, especially at the end of 1 Kings 19 for the prophet uh, Elijah. But Elisha, when he is called, when he is brought to ministry, he's a sign of hope and renewal for God's people, especially in, in seasons uh, and periods of, of great discouragement. Elisha especially is a reminder that God is still working. And God is still working among his people. So let's pray together and let's read this text and let's um, get into it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for um, your word. Uh, we thank you for its, its truths and for all the different ways that it instructs us. Thank you for Elisha and his ministry. We do pray that as we come to your word now, you would... Um, Soften our hearts to receive it. Help us to understand it as well. And pray that you would give us a, a bigger picture of who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. And the Lord said to him, uh, that is Elijah, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Amen. Uh, now, it's, it's, it's hard to really understand the significance of Elisha's call here without really understanding the context of what's been going on so far. Uh, which, which is partly why we read, starting at verse 15, uh, in this con at the, the tail end of this conversation that the Lord is having with Elijah. If you were to go back through First uh, and Second Samuel and, and, and earlier in First Kings so far, God has uh, established his people in their land. He's established uh, King David as a man after his own heart's, who is to receive the promise of a, a seed who will reign on the throne forever. He's promised great things to David. And after David passes away, his son Solomon takes the throne. And Solomon takes the nation of Israel really to, uh, to become one of the greatest nations that ever existed in civilization. One of the richest, one of the wealthiest, one of the most prosperous, and yet Solomon... A lot like his father David had a very, very hard fall. And after Solomon 
falls and eventually passes away, his son Rehoboam takes over. Rehoboam is very well known for committing one of the greatest follies uh, in leadership ever. Uh, the people come to Rehoboam and say, would you please soften the load upon us that your father had given us? Rehoboam, in his folly, listens to the wrong people. He actually makes the load harder for his people, taxes them even more, and that splits the nation in two. And so we see that this once great nation starting to crumble even more. A majority of the country goes with this man named Jeroboam. King Jeroboam, although God gave him the kingship, Jeroboam institutionalizes uh, idols in his country. Uh, Jeroboam, out of his his paranoia and his fear for people leaving for the the former kingdom, sets up idols for the people to worship so that they don't have to go all the way south uh, to the real temple to worship God. And this sort of institutionalized idolatry would be a, a thorn in the side of Israel for the rest of its history. And Jeroboam's family and his dynasty is is condemned. A few other people take over. A lot of people are assassinated until King Omri uh, takes the throne in Israel. And Omri, although we don't hear a lot about his reign, it says he does more evil than all who were before him. And so we see the nation slide further. And like I said, there's not much about Omri. You might not have heard of Omri, but I'm pretty sure you've heard of his son. King Ahab. Uh, And as one preacher put it, King Ahab was the the vilest of human toads to ever squat on the throne of Israel. This was a wicked man. Uh, As much evil as his father Omri did, and as much evil as Jeroboam did, leading an entire nation into idolatry, Ahab considered that a light thing. He persecuted and murdered the prophets of God. He marries wicked Queen Jezebel and and builds, there had been idols all along, but now he builds a full-blown temple for the idol Baal. And in a country of millions and millions and millions of people, we're left with hundreds, thousands of true believers of God. And the Lord himself says, nobody had done more to provoke me to anger than any king like Ahab. Enter Elijah. Elijah is the prophet, the champion of God, to fight against this evil, to fight against this wickedness. Almost single-handedly, he is the man to confront Ahab and Jezebel. He confronts the entire nation on their apostasy. And so as Israel starts to slide further and further away from God, Elijah is going to be the one man in the hands of God to end it all. He's going to be the one man to bring them back. And he, he has that sort of, that, that big moment. 1 Kings 18, one of the, the more well-known passages in his ministry, he, he, he's on Mount Carmel. He is facing the prophets of Baal, and he puts them to a challenge. And he says, let's each build a sacrifice, and whichever God can light their sacrifice on fire, he is the true God. 
The prophets of Baal do everything that they can. Uh, They dance, they cut themselves, they do everything to plead with Baal for hours that he would light their sacrifice on fire, and he doesn't. Elijah dumps barrel after barrel after barrel of water on his sacrifice. He says a simple prayer that God's glory would be made known among all these people today. And fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And that's it. Elijah's had his moment. That This great, great victory. God's name has been vindicated and glorified. And yet, when we get to chapter 19, what happens? It, it looks as though de- defeat has been snatched from the jaws of victory. Jezebel proclaims to Elijah and takes this oath, really, may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of those prophets who were killed by this time tomorrow. And Elijah doesn't know what to do with that. He's won this great victory on Mount Carmel, rained fire down from heaven, put to death the prophets of Baal, and now his life is threatened and he is on the run all alone. He's been zealous for God's name, rained fire down from heaven, but now here he is hiding in a cave himself with his life on the line. And it turns out he hasn't won a war. He's only just won a battle. And when we get to verse 15 of of chapter 19 of of 1 Kings, what is God going to do with Elijah? This is a man who who single-handedly was supposed to lead Israel back uh, to worship and obedience. He was supposed to put to death the wicked Ahab and Jezebel. He's supposed to usher in this, this new order. And it doesn't happen. It, it, it's an incredible disappointment for a great prophet of God. That these things just, just weren't happening the way he thought. They weren't happening the way they were supposed to. And when we get to verse 15, God here, he reaffirms his covenant and his plan to Elijah. He reassures Elijah that the evil do not win. He says, no, I'm going to anoint different people, three people, Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. And they will will judge those who have rebelled. And more than that, I assure you that I have kept a remnant for myself. In verse 18, one of, one of the, the greatest promises for Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal and have not kissed him. There is going to be that fulfillment that God promised at the beginning, but it's not going to happen with Elijah. It's not going to be him. Elijah is meant to prepare the way for somebody else. For a different order. The old is going to give way to the new. Elijah has done everything he can to show who the one true God of Israel is, 
but it's going to be Elisha that saves and restores the remnant. And so when we get to, to verse 19 and Elisha's actual call, Elisha's call shows us that, that God is, is somebody who very stubbornly and steadfastly keeps his covenant and keeps his promises. God is going to continue to work and he's going to continue to show his grace. No matter how dark it seems, no matter how persecuted the people of God are, no matter how uh, in danger your life might be, God is going to keep working. God is going to keep building his church. And there's nothing that a Jezebel can do about that. God builds his church. And really, it, it, what a grace it is to, to poor, discouraged, disillusioned, um, doubting Elijah that God immediately shows him his successor in Elisha. Elijah's not actually going to anoint Hazael um, and Jehu. Elisha's the only one. But, but what a grace it is for God to show him what he is going to do with Elisha. He's a God who keeps his word. So he doesn't see it all, but, but he sees a little glimpse, and it's enough to keep him going. Elijah doesn't fall away. He doesn't give up. He doesn't quit on God. He keeps going. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, the, again, the, the better and the greater Elisha says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is relentlessly committed to his gospel being preached. He's relentlessly committed to strangers and neighbors and visitors hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being converted and regenerating new people. He's committed to, to the next generation being raised up, born in the church and baptized and taught and raised in the Lord. He's committed to, to missionaries and evangelists going out uh, and proclaiming Jesus Christ. He's committed to equipping his people in the church and doing the work of ministry. He's committed to the name of Christ being glorified above all else. Uh, it's actually a great reason, I know Pastor Mark announced Sunday school next week, to come and hear Davy and Pindy because it's so easy to be very so narrowly focused on just where we are and what's happening around us, God is doing a ton of work. He is doing so much. And, and there's so little that we actually know about. And to hear the ways that, that God is, is sending his word to places that have never heard it before, sending his word to the most unlikely places where believers are killed simply for believing Jesus, what a balm for the soul it is for us to know that God, he's not giving up on his church. It looks dark, it looks bleak, but he's still building. God keeps building. Uh, Christ's triumph sometimes seems uh, a little far-fetched especially when we see institutionalized evil or we see great heroes of the faith uh, fall in immorality. 
none of that changes the fact that God has a mission and he's building his church. Uh, Elisha for us is, is, he's not just a representative, though, of God fulfilling his promise. Uh, Elisha's response to the call is instructive for us. He's an example for us in the way he responds to God's call. Um, Elisha is called by God to be a part of that mission. And if Elijah, on the one hand, is somebody who, who's, who's pretty discouraged and doubting and, and down uh, with everything that he sees, Elisha is, is way on the other end of the spectrum. Just total wholehearted enthusiasm. He is all in. Um, and Elisha's, Elisha's call is unique. Uh, he's called to be a prophet. Uh, he's called to do something very, very special. But his call represents for us uh, a very common call for, for all of us. Right? God does call each one of us to trust in Jesus Christ and then to go out and follow him and join the mission. He calls us really as, uh, again, like I read from Matthew 28, he calls us to be a part of that commission and to go out and to make disciples and to build his church. And any way, any time, God makes that call upon us. Uh, we need to respond like Elisha. So what, what, how, is, how is Elisha's call instructive for us? Well, for one, God, God's call on Elisha is quite sudden. Uh, it really comes out of the blue. It's actually a lot like Jesus and his disciples, right? So Jesus is walking along the countryside, doing his ministry. Uh, two men are out in a boat fishing, and God calls them to follow uh, Matthew is just sitting at his tax collector's booth, his table, and Jesus walks by and said, you follow me now. Right? Imagine sitting at home, watching TV, sitting at work, on the phone with somebody, and somebody were to just walk in and say, your life is completely di different now, from here on out. Let's go. It just comes out of the blue. Uh, that doesn't mean that the, the takeaway is not that, well, just live your life and wait for God to tell you something. No, there, there's always the call in our lives to, to follow Jesus in every way we can, to be purposeful about our lives, direct everything to God's glory, but, but sometimes there's a very particular call, a particular opportunity or a particular need that comes about, and God is calling you to act. At the drop of a hat, God is calling you to act. Whether it's some, some way to love our neighbors or serve the church or make a defense for the gospel and our hope, that call can come at any time. And when it comes, every time it comes, it's our obligation to listen and to obey. It can come quite suddenly. And Elisha, for his part, responds wholeheartedly. Uh, some people compare Elisha to the, the, the men that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 9. Uh, and I'll grant in a way they sound very much the same. The call comes upon them uh, from somebody, and they both want to turn around and kiss their parents goodbye. 
Uh, but these instances are very, very different. The Luke 9 man is looking for an excuse to stay behind. He's using his parents as an excuse to, to not go and follow Jesus. He's the kind of man who, who puts his hands to the plow, like Jesus says, and just keeps kind of turning back wistfully and saying, boy, wasn't that a good life? Boy, I really miss that. That's a shame. I had so much. I guess I got to give it up. On the contrary, what does Elisha do? The yokes and the oxen that he is plowing with, he chops up and offers as a sacrifice. He makes a clean break with his former life. Makes a clean break with his old calling. Which is what we all have to do because it's a costly calling to follow Jesus, isn't it? Again, Jesus told us that in Luke chapter 9, what we read earlier. You might not have a home to lay your head down. You might not have your family members to come around you and support you when you follow the call to Christ. You take up your cross and you follow him and and, and you go to march to your death. Uh, Elisha, symbolically in, in cutting up these things and offering a sacrifice, he's leaving behind security. He is leaving behind family that he loves. He's leaving behind the the familiar life that he knows. He's leaving behind that routine, right, that, that we all love very much. But it's all for the sake of following God, and for us, for the sake of, of following Christ. And it, listen, it, it's a costly call, but it's a worthwhile one, isn't it? Because we may lose everything on this earth. We may lose our life. But Jesus says you gain your soul and you gain eternity. And so just all the more reason why we need to be single-mindedly focused in obeying and fulfilling the mission of Christ. Because if we leave, if we, listen, we're all going to be so tempted to turn back and say, you know what? There's just so many good things about not following Christ. It'd just be so much easier. I'd have more money in my bank accounts. I'd have a good relationship with my family again. Um, I could do a lot more fun things and buy a lot more toys. Uh, But you lose your soul when you turn back and look at those good things. And that's a trade not worth making. Here's what makes it uh, even more challenging. Elisha's call is actually not all that glorious. Though he's going to be a a prophet, he's going to do a lot of great things. What does it say right at the end of verse uh, 21, the very last sentence? He arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. He served him. He ministered to him. Um, that's all he does. In 2 Kings chapter 3, we, we get this sort of strange comment that Elisha was somebody who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. I mean, that's not big stuff. That's not very glorious. He's washing somebody else's hands. Um, but the call to fulfill God's mission is, is usually not very glorious. 
It's to, to bake a meal and to bring it to somebody who needs it. Um, small stuff, but significant stuff. And stuff that you might not ever get recognition for. Uh, I think if we admit it, we all have a little bit of the, um, the James and John problem, right? The two disciples who came, actually, sent their mother to go talk to Jesus and say, could my sons sit on your right and left hand in heaven? I think that'd be really great. Uh, we've all got a little bit of that inclination in our hearts, I think, if we admit it. A little bit of that sin that, that wants to be recognized. We want to be on the right hand of Jesus. We want to be known. We want people to see the things that we're doing. Um, and that's not what we're called to. The call to follow Christ is one where, where we don't get recognition. It's not going to be standing up and preaching in front of thousands and thousands of people and having hundreds and thousands come down for an altar call. Um, we're called to serve. We're called to count other people more significant than ourselves. We're called to humility. And we're called to deflect all the praise and glory to Jesus Christ. That's what we sign up for when we sign up to follow Jesus. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, what we see from Elisha. It is an all-consuming call to follow God and to give your life to Christ. It's an all-consuming call to, to die to ourselves and to live everything for God's glory. But it's also a call that comes with the greatest promises, the greatest assurances in the entire world. It's the assurance and a promise of, of eternal life, that your debt has been paid in Christ, and your eternal standing before God is good. And you are part of a mission that cannot fail as God is building his church. It's a worthwhile call to follow. So will you answer that call and follow Christ? Amen. Let's pray together. Our great Heavenly Father, we do thank you for um, Elisha and for all that you teach us through him. Lord, we thank you that you are, uh, again, a God of promises, a God who keeps building his church. We pray, O oh Lord, that um, even as we look out at our, our city and our state and our nation, as we look out at a, a, a dark world filled with people who are hostile to you, Lord, would you confirm in us these truths that you are building your church we pray, Lord, that you would empower us and strengthen us to keep going on that mission. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be uh, working through us to send your gospel wider, but also to send it deeper into our own hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would make us people who are, who are ready and willing and able and quick to serve you whenever the call comes. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us, and we pray that you would make us um, faithful followers for your namesake. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.